0: Progress. All right. A formal welcome to Gabal and Coffee. Hey, Luann. Good to see you. Um, okay, so today is a very special day on the, on the Jewish calendar. What is special about today? Today is the third day of Tammuz. Gimel Tammuz, the third day of Tammuz, which is the yard site of the Rebbe, the, the, the anniversary of the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, blessed memory, who passed away 27 years ago on this day. Actually, um, in 1994, when the Rebbe passed away, it was the same type of... um, The the Hebrew date fell out on the same day of the week, fell out on a Sunday. Um, The Rebbe passed away on a Saturday night, and the funeral was on Sunday. I remember just... uh, Recollection. I remember I was... How old was I? I was 15 years old, and I remember getting woken up in the middle of the night, and with the news, and uh, we got a flight the next morning, Sunday morning, we flew to New York for, for the funeral, which of course was attended by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, given the stature of the, of, of the Rebbe and what the Rebbe meant, not only to the, to the you know, Brooklyn community, but really to the global Jewish community and beyond. So today is of course a day to, amongst other things, to, to reflect on the Rebbe's life and legacy, and to try to draw positive inspiration forward for all of us because, you know, the, the, the life of a leader is really meant to inspire um, to, to inspire us all. So I, I just want to focus on one thing, one element that relates to today's class. Um, today's class being about the power of a mitzvah, which I sent out in the email. So just one thing to focus on um, with regards to the Rebbe's perspective and, and some of the Rebbe's legacy. And I'm going to borrow from uh, from a sermon that I read a transcript of, um, actually this morning, a sermon that was given by a conservative rabbi. I don't know where he, you know, where he, um, you know, where he is a rabbi, but a conservative rabbi who spoke in uh, a few years ago on Kol Nidre about about the rebbe, about the Lubavitcher rebbe. He said that in America there were three major elements to jewish continuity and jewish education you had the holocaust you had israel and you had what was the third one? it was holocaust israel and anti-semitism right these are like the three major themes in judaism and jewish education you know in hebrew school or whatever it is you know to, to teach the kids or even in communities and synagogues to talk about so number one holocaust right so holocaust education never again that's one theme. second theme is israel you know the State of Israel, Jewish state, second theme, third theme is anti-Semitism and how we have to fight anti-Semitism, etc. and this rabbi proceeded to to explain how th- these three themes, while powerful, don't resonate today perhaps as strongly as they resonated a few years ago. So the Holocaust, I mean can we really raise another generation saying you have to be Jewish so as not to let Hitler have won, you know, 70 years ago. Does, is that a message that really resonates? Although it's true, is it a message that resonates? Israel. Um, American Jews and young American Jews are more conflicted than ever about Israel. I'm not weighing in on, on right, wrong, or otherwise, but that's the reality. Does it resonate as a, as a theme? Not, maybe, one could argue, and I think would be accurate in arguing, that not, not as strongly as it once was. And anti-Semitism, you know, yes, there's nothing that brings, people, brings Jews together as much as, uh, unfortunately, as anti-Semitism. But at the same time, is that something that we really want to hang our hats on? That, yes, everyone came out to, to synagogue because of something anti-Semitic that happened. That's not something that, that really is inspirational. It's kind of reactive and not proactive. Um, I, I read a story recently related to this where there was a student group in some university that was looking to bring a Jewish speaker, and there was a little bit of a back and forth. And then eventually the, the, student, the student group reached out to the speaker and said, you know what, we're good, we don't need, we're, we're, we're not looking anymore to bring you out. Why? Because this was in the times of Ahmadinejad in, in, in Iran, so he had made some statement Remember Ahmadinejad, the, the guy in Iran? So he had made some statements, some anti-Jewish statement, and that brought out all the students. So they said, all right, we already, we already got all the stu- Jewish students together. We don't need the speaker because um, Ahmadinejad, he did, he, did, he did the job for us. But that's not a sustainable model for Judaism. The Rebbe's model was very different. It wasn't a reactive Judaism. It wasn't a Judaism response to the Holocaust or you know, tethered on you know, a certain political climate or whatever it is, or, or, or anti-Semitic climate. It was rather based on Judaism, based on doing a mitzvah. The Rebbe famously launched 10 major campaigns, mitzvah campaigns, one of which is a tefillin campaign that men over bar mitzvah should be wrapping tefillin, you know, whenever possible, which is what we did today in honor of the Rebbe's We had Our goal was 27, and we had more than 27 people come out to wrap tefillin. And that was one of the campaigns. Another campaign was um, women lighting Shabbat candles, Um, a home having a tzedakah box, homes having uh, Jewish books, kosher food in the kitchen, etc. Various campaigns. And these are not, of course, innovative. When I say innovative, these are not new things. They're all Jewish things. But the Rebbe's focus in, in bringing Judaism to a new generation, really into the world, was not. there were no tricks, there were no gimmicks. It was all about authenticity. Authentic Judaism. And authentic Judaism begins with a mitzvah, right? What is Judaism if not for a mitzvah? It's not a slogan. It's not a, you know, it's, it's nothing other than a mitzvah experience. That's the most authentic experience within Judaism. And that is what is, what is inspiring. I saw this morning how inspiring it is for people to get together, rap fillin', fill in, and say the Shema. It's a beautiful thing. There's no, no gimmicks, no... You know, no. Yes, of course we had bagels. Okay, fine. There was a little bit of a gimmick, but that's the post, the post-rap, you know, uh, f- uh, food. I'm I'm kidding about gimmick. It's not. The the purpose was wrapping tefillin, saying Shema, saying a prayer, and that in and of itself is beautiful, and that and that is what is really Jewishly inspiring. And so, just for me this morning, when thinking about, you know, 27 years since the Rebbe's passing and what the Rebbe lived for, and you know how the Rebbe. Breathe life into Judaism, it was really all about the cores, all about the essence, all about the mitzvah. Which brings us to today's topic, which is the power of a mitzvah. So what is so powerful about a mitzvah? So we know it's, a, it's authentic Judaism. Hold on. I see Donna wrote something in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> Overheard in New York City. Excuse me, are you Jewish? Exactly. The Rebbe said, yeah. The Rebbe said, go out to Manhattan, go out to the streets, and, and ask people to put on tefillin. So how are you going to know? Say, so Excuse me, are you Jewish? Yes, would you like to put on tefillin? Or, excuse me, are you Jewish? Yes, would you like a Shabbat candle? You're not going to light Shabbat candles right there, but would you like a Shabbat candle lighting kit for Friday night? Exactly, yeah. And uh, if you've been to New York City and you may have seen the RVs or whatever it is, we used to call them, they're still called mitzvah tanks, not a tank. But the Rebbe said, why should tank only be used for negative fighting? Let's when fighting darkness with light, obviously in a positive way, we can also use the language tanks. They call the mitzvah tanks, RVs that went out with uh, space you could jump on, ramp fill in, or you know learn something, eat some kosher food, and then jump off and get back into your day. Anyway, the point is like this: that the mitzvah is the mo- most authentic Jewish experience. It's a mitzvah that really brings out the essence of a Jew, and and it's it's not just nostalgia. It's not like oh, I remember my bubby, you know, lighting Shabbat candles. So it's. It's more than that. It's it's authentic to who we are. It's part of our DNA. It's like like that song that when you hear it, it resonates and it seems like you heard it once before because it's so beautiful and it's so attuned to your soul, it sounds familiar. Mitzvah sounds familiar. Mitzvah is a familiar tune for the soul. So let's talk about the power of a mitzvah. Because a mitzvah, the word mitzvah has many different meanings to it. And each one is true. And there are deeper and deeper layers of a mitzvah. And I think it's important, especially in, in the context of today's class, it's important to really understand what is the power of a mitzvah. So on a basic level, many people translate mitzvah as good deed. Right? What is it? A mitzvah? A good deed. right? Doing something good. And that's a great definition. It's a true definition. Mitzvot are good deeds. But there are other things that are also good deeds that aren't a mitzvah, right? I mean, it's like you could do something nice, not necessarily a mitzvah, but it's also a good deed. So a good deed is a mitzvah, but not all good deeds are a mitzvot, if that makes sense. Yes? Does that kind of make sense? Okay. So we need to look a little bit deeper. Um, Give me one second. Okay. So that's definition number one. Definition number two is mitzvah is a commandment, a divine command. God says, this is what I'd like you to do, and we do it, and that's a mitzvah. Good, that's a a pretty decent understanding of a mitzvah as well, and that is true. Mitzvah comes from the word sav, which means command or commandment. So mitzvah is a divine command, fairly accurate. I would say with that definition, the challenge is that it may not be as inspiring to some. You tell someone, hey, I'd like, um, here, you can light Shabbat candles. Why? Because God commanded you to do so. Ugh. I mean, it has a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of, a, of an edge to it. Not that it has to, but maybe for some, you might hear, well, God commanded you to do it. You know, some people like commandments being told what to do. Some people may not like to be told what to do. So although a mitzvah is a divine commandment, but there's a, there, maybe we can go a little bit deeper in understanding what really is at the core of a mitzvah. So we have mitzvah as a good deed, true. Mitzvah as a commandment, also true. But let's go a little bit deeper. So in Kabbalah, a mitzvah is explained as a point of connection. So, mitzvah could mean commandment. It can also mean connection. And it's related to the Aramaic word, tzavta, which means chibur, which means connection. So, for example, if you were binding two things together, binding two entities together, fusing them together, we would call that tzavta, combining fusing, connecting. So what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is the ultimate binding agent. Super glue for the soul. No, I'm kidding. But what is a mitzvah? It binds us to God. Or it binds us, our physical actions, to our own soul. Similar concept, just either the spirit outside of us or inside of us, either way. Um, a mitzvah connects us with something greater than ourselves. A mitzvah is that piece of our day in which we connect with a, with a truth deeper than what we're conscious of, what we're aware of. It's kind of like what I said before about you know the, the, power, of a, the power of a mitzvah, of doing a mitzvah on a Sunday morning, getting together, let's say wrapping tefillin, and saying a little prayer, saying the Shema, and that itself just making you feel connected and feel centered and feel, you know, feeling, feeling spiritual. It's a connection point. A mitzvah is a connection. But it's a connection on multiple levels. So on one level, a mitzvah connects us with God. On another level, again, very similarly, a mitzvah connects us with our soul. And on another level, a mitzvah connects the divine energy with with the mitzvah item itself that is being used to perform the mitzvah. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you're lighting Shabbat candles, and you have a candle. So what is a candle? A candle is made out of wax. There's a wick running through the middle. And then to light it, you attach a fire to the wick. The fire burns the wick, and it burns the fuel, whatever, the, the paraffin, the wax, beeswax, whatever candle you're using. And, uh, and with that, it becomes a lit candle. So when we do a mitzvah, what we're really doing is transforming the physical elements that are, that are, that are being utilized into a holy experience, into a divine experience. We're, we're declaring that this thing is not simply a lump of wax with a wick running through it. But this thing is part of God's plan for the world. This thing bespeaks a truth higher than what what it expresses on the surface. So to explain this, I'm going to use some of the terminology that we used recently in our JLI course, This Can Happen. So essentially, why are we here? The big question, why, why are we here? Why does the world exist? Why, are we, why do we exist? Kabbalah has an answer. And that is, God wants a home on earth. And what that means, cutting through layers of, uh, of commentary and analysis, what that means essentially is that God wants this world to be transparent to his reality. So imagine... An artist who creates a a work of art, hides his or her own identity, and wants to be discovered through the art. Wants somehow to be discovered through the art. But here you have an even greater level. Imagine an author writing a book, creating characters that are so real that they begin to have their own consciousness, their own awareness. And the goal is that 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 the characters in the story should become so aware, not only of self, but ultimately of the author who wrote them into being. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of trippy. But imagine, right, an author who writes characters so vividly that they come to life, and the goal is that they should not only become aware of themselves and their surroundings and live in that story, but also break down, as they call it in, in film, right, break down the fourth wall and see beyond the box, beyond the set, to discover the creator of... This world that they're in, so that's that's what God wants with this. God wants a home on Earth, meaning God wants us to discover the author, the designer, the creator, right? God wants us to discover Him. The way it works is that in truth, everything is God. Everything is powered by divine energy. Nothing can exist like a book. Nothing wrote itself. It's all being written. It, it's it's the script. The, the, the plot, it's all being written by God, by the author, by God. So nothing exists separate from the source. The question is, do we recognize it as unified with source, or do we see it as its own self-contained set story, plot, narrative, totally divorced from a source? So that, And that's that's an us question. That's a, That's a me question. Do I see this as separate from source, or as a perfect continuum, something that is being manifest, something that is being projected constantly from the source, constantly being written into plot by the, by the author um, emanating from source, or do I see it as, no, this is separate? And that's really what the struggle of life is all about on a spiritual level. Do I see this moment? Do I see this challenge? Do I see this opportunity? Do I see this person? Do I see myself? as a part of the divine, or as a separate disconnected entity. And that's the struggle of life. Because when we see things as separate, we know what, that, we know what happens then, right? So the challenges become, become overwhelming, and, and, and ego sets in, and all of, the, all of the negative stuff sets in when we have that disconnect. When we sense the connection, so then we live with purpose. We live for higher purpose. We live for something greater than ourselves. The ego can get taken out because it's not, who am I anyway, if not an emanation from God, and you're the same. So now we can let go of ego, and now we can get along with others. I mean, all the, all the problems begin with that disconnect, and the solutions begin when we reconnect consciously, when we recognize the source and how the source is what's powering everything here. So the purpose of life, according to Kabbalah, is to create this home for God on earth, which means not to actually you know, build a home physically, but rather to open up our awareness to recognize that God is indeed behind everything. And how do we express that in action? Not necessarily with hammer and nails, but with a candle doing a mitzvah, you take a candle and you light it Shabbat after Friday afternoon 18 minutes before sunset and you say the blessing you do the mitzvah of of Shabbat candle lighting, what you're doing in that moment is saying, I know that this candle is not some sort of self-contained, separate you know, out of nowhere existence, but it's rather part of this greater reality, it's part of the the continuum that begins in the spiritual and culminates in the physical expression of the spiritual, and this candle is nothing other than an expression of something higher than itself. And to demonstrate, I'm going to utilize it for a mitzvah. The same thing is, is true when we put on tefillin, or when we wrap ourselves in a talit, or when we eat kosher food, or when we study Torah using our minds, the message is that our brain or the piece of leather or the, or the wax or the food item is not something separate, but it's something part of something much greater than itself. And so really a mitzvah is about consciously, I said before, mitzvah as connection. It's not just that it connects me with God or connects, um, or connects me with my soul. A mitzvah also connects the spiritual with the physical item that I'm utilizing in performing the mitzvah. Does that make sense? So it's like it's binding the source with the end product that otherwise could seem to be completely disconnected. A mitzvah is essentially taking the wrapping paper off the present. It's essentially unboxing the physical item and saying, I see inside. I see the truth. I see what's really going on here. It's not just a candle. It's not just a piece of leather. It's not just a piece of wool. It's not just a, you know, an item of food on a plate. This is something that comes from God and is intended for a higher purpose. So every mitzvah that we do lifts us up to a higher state of consciousness, where we're no longer seeing things through a very limited vantage point, a very limited perspective, a very boxed in perspective. We're seeing things from a much broader perspective, which is why a mitzvah is an invigorating experience, because we know what it's like to look at things from a limited perspective, right? It's very limiting, and it's very suffocating, and it's very... It becomes draining to look at life from a very boxed-in perspective like this is it and this is all that we see And this is all that we get and this is all that we're aware of. It's very limiting When we do a mitzvah, we're transported to a different reality, right? A candle is not a candle The filling in not just a piece of piece of leather Talit is not just a piece of wool food is not just you know food on a plate It's something much bigger It allows us to touch on something much bigger, much grander, to see a perspective which unifies everything and grants purpose and meaning to everything as well. And that's invigorating if nothing else. So a mitzvah is significant on so many levels. It is a good deed. right? A mitzvah is also a divine commandment, sure. But a mitzvah Above above everything else, a mitzvah is a connection point. It connects us with God, connects us with our soul, connects us with purpose, and it lifts us to a higher consciousness that allows us to see that everything around us is really connected with a higher source. Nothing just started here. Just, oh, one day it popped into existence by itself. Nothing wrote itself into the script. The example that's given, and I've heard this about various Jewish philosophers. I've heard this about Maimonides and others when they were debating um, other scholars about the origins of life. And I'll just use Maimonides because he's uh, he's one of the rabbis that this story is told about. So I'll just so We'll tell it as, as happening with Maimonides. So Maimonides was in this debate, this ongoing debate with a friend of his about um, an, another philosopher, a non-Jewish philosopher, about the origins of life. Maimonides, of course, took the Jewish belief that life comes from God and this other person said, who said? Everything just came just, just came to be on its own. So it once happened, Maimonides was visiting his friend, this, this fellow, and his friend was Amongst other things, a philosopher, but also a poet. And the friend walks out of the room for a few minutes. To tend to something in his house. Maimonides goes over to this man's desk, and he sees that there's a poem that this fellow started and didn't finish. So he reads the poem. It's a beautiful poem. Maimonides decides to finish the poem himself. He takes the pen, takes the quill, right, dips it in the ink, finishes the poem. And then takes the inkwell, you know, back in the day before pens, they had like a little glass or whatever, container with the ink. You would dip the quill in. And so he, he, he took the, 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 the inkwell and he spilled it. He spilled it on the corner of the, um, of the paper. Now the fellow comes back in the room a few minutes later and he sees, at some point he notices the, what's going on in his desk. He sees the, the poem, and he sees that it's finished, and he reads it, and it's beautiful. And he says to Maimonides, he says, thank you very much for finishing it. It's amazing. Yeah, he gives him a hug. He's so happy, so excited. You, you gave a beautiful conclusion to this poem that I've been struggling to, to conclude. Maimonides says, don't thank me. I didn't write it. What happened was I was walking by your desk, my elbow bumped the inkwell, it spilled, right? And it just, the way it spilled is it formed these letters, right? You see the, the spill on the corner, but then somehow the ink just formed the letters to conclude your poem. The guy looks at him and says, are you masuga?" Okay, I'm paraphrasing. It's like, have you got mad? Are you crazy? What do you think I am, a fool? You're telling me that you think that by that by you want me to believe that by accident the ink spilled and somehow exactly created precisely the words to finish the poem. And Maimani says to him, and you would have me believe that somehow by some cosmic accident, right? This is before the, the language of evolution or whatever, by some cosmic accident, also before Big Bang, but by some cosmic accident, all of the this intricate life beautiful, exquisitely intricate life just randomly came to be by accident. You expect me to believe that? So that was my And I don't know if Maimonides convinced this fellow. I have no idea because, you know, people have their beliefs and it's hard to, and it's really not about, you know, convincing people as much as it is about, you know, just believing what we believe in and being a mensch. But this was Maimonides' way of kind of expressing his view that life is not an accident. Life is not a cosmic accident. Life is not that which... Life is not the product of of an inkwell spilling and and making all this. This life is connected directly to a source. And so every mitzvah is a declaration, if you will, an affirmation of this higher truth. Every mitzvah says, I believe that there's something greater than the here and now, And thus, I'm going to use something from the here and now, from this physical, tangible reality. I'm going to utilize it for a divine purpose. And in doing so, I'm bridging the spiritual and the material worlds. I'm creating that connection, mitzvah connection. I'm creating the bridge of connection between the divine and the mundane. Between the sublime and the terrestrial. I'm bridging heaven and earth with this action. That is what a mitzvah does. And that's why it's so powerful. Because it lifts us out of the box. Right? Imagine. Remember the Matrix? Remember the film The Matrix? What was the whole thing about The Matrix? So you have people that are living in The Matrix and they don't even know that they're hooked up, if I recall. It's been, it's been a few years. Right? They, they've been kind of zombified or whatever. They're just like hooked up to computers by... Whatever it is, but their, their minds are filled with this perception of this, this reality, this vivid reality. But meanwhile, they're not really living. A mitzvah takes us out of being stuck in a very mundane space and allows us to touch on a greater truth. Hence, the, the, the power of a mitzvah. This is the purpose of the mitzvah and the power of a mitzvah. So, every mitzvah, essentially does the same thing. Every mitzvah connects us with God, connects us with our soul, connects us with something higher, connects the item with godliness, with something higher than itself. Every mitzvah across the board essentially does the same thing. But, which begs the question, so why are there 613 mitzvot? Right? Why so many mitzvot? if every mitzvah does the same thing, because every mitzvah does it a little bit differently. Every mitzvah does essentially the same thing, but does it particularly in a different way. So every mitzvah, yes, every mitzvah does bring heaven down to earth or lift earth up to heaven, connects us with God and our soul. Every mitzvah essentially or generally does the same thing, but specifically, every mitzvah has its own way of doing it. It's kind of like, um, trying to think of a good example. Um, Yeah, there's a mitzvah to love our fellow as ourselves, a mitzvah to love every person, right? So that's great, we are supposed to love everybody, but we have different relationships with different people. right? Some people are our family, some people are our neighbors, some people are our community members, some people are the stranger. That we're meant to love also and and, and help. So even within this general, you know, overarching um, commandment to love your fellows yourself, there are different relationships. And so the same thing is true with a mitzvah. Every mitzvah, generally speaking, is a point of connection. But specifically, every mitzvah has its own way of connecting us with something higher, has its own messaging for us. So what I want to do is, we're going to jump inside the text in a moment. And we're going to look at, we're going to look at, um, we are going to look at, give me a second here. We're going to look inside, I'm going to look at an example of several mitzvot that are cited in our text specifically describing their spiritual meaning. So again, although every mitzvah in general brings heaven down to earth and builds a home for God on earth, creates that connection between the mundane and the the divine across the board, but every mitzvah has its own way of doing it. And today we're gonna give, I think, three or four or five examples in our text about the power of a mitzvah. Now, I'll explain why we're doing this in our text so the reason is because we're talking about the power of a mitzvah and really what it means to spend our time wisely. What is a wise use of our time doing a mitzvah? Why? Because a mitzvah is this incredible opportunity to connect and to uplift as we've, as we've been discussing this morning. Whereas doing the opposite of a mitzvah is at its core a distraction. So we can either connect or disconnect. This is the the meditation that can help us in those moments of challenge, those moments of crisis, inner crisis, when we're faced with a choice. We're standing at a crossroads. Should I do this or should I do that? And our book, which is called Overcoming Folly, is all about getting our heads in a good space right, getting our heads in a more connected space, to connect with, to understand how can I get myself more encouraged, more enthusiastic about doing the right thing and not, God forbid, doing the wrong thing. This is more fuel to the fire. This is adding fuel to the fire in a good way. This is adding meditation to the experience. Why should I do a mitzvah when I could do something else? Because a mitzvah speaks to my purpose. A mitzvah speaks to my core. A mitzvah speaks to the greatest truth. A mitzvah connects me with what's really true and really meaningful and really powerful. Sure, I could do something else, but the mitzvah is what connects me. And doing the other thing is at its core a profound distraction. Okay, so with that in mind, let me pause here for a moment. Questions, comments thus far? Okay, so far so good. Let me share my screen and let's jump inside. Okay, so we are in middle of overcoming folly. Let's take a look. We are at discourse number seven. Just doing some scrolling. Let's find the right place. That's discourse five. Discourse six. Let's keep on going. All right, I think we're getting close. Oh, I think we, looks like we passed it. Okay, so Discourse 7, I'm pretty sure we started last week. And we spoke about the royal feast. We spoke about the the level of face and the level of hinder part. We talked about a a face-to-face connection, so to speak, with the divine versus kind of a back-to-back relationship. So we can either be on point, on target, right? Doing what God wants, kind of fulfilling our purpose and what God wants from us, or we can be, or we cannot be doing the above. So if, when we're locked in, in that face-to-face space, so we we get the energy in a direct fashion. When we unplug and when we go to a different place, so yeah, we still get vitality, divine energy, but it's more indirect. It's more kind of over the shoulder, behind the back type of uh, type of uh, uh, bestowing of energy, as opposed to that face to face. And the example that he gave, that we spoke about at uh, we spoke about at length last week, is the king who makes the royal feast, who has in mind, you know, the recipients, the uh, the guests at the feast. But you know, when the feast is over. The scraps are, are enjoyed by other creatures that aren't necessarily the intended recipients. So the same thing is true in this world. So God creates this world for a purpose. There's a, there's a meaning behind it. There's a purpose. And when we're connected with that, we get the energy in a direct way. When we're disconnected, we get the scraps. We still get something, but it's not the, it's not the, the intended way. So let's jump into... our new conversation today inside. Take a look at chapter two. I think we started this last week. I think we did this first paragraph, but I wanna get a running start into the new text. So let's start over here. The parallel on high can be understood. And it was just like it is with the feast, the royal feast where there are guests and then there are the scraps. So too it is with the universe. The inwardness of the divine will radiates to Israel alone. As it is written, may God let his countenance shine upon you, stressing upon you. So basically, and I know it mentions Israel, but really anyone committed to the monotheistic Abrahamic covenant and the idea of, 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 of Torah and mitzvot and goodness and even you know the, 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 the Noahide laws, someone who's plugged into what God wants is getting the energy face-to-face, which is the meaning of countenance, right? May God let his countenance shine upon you. Countenance is the face. So that is face-to-face. So this is affected through eliciting the divine will that illuminates only through Torah and mitzvot. And again, depending on the person, the context, you know, is, is how many mitzvot one might have. But the bottom line is, When a person is doing the mitzvot, one is connected face to face. Fundamentally, the wisdom of Torah flows from the inwardness of the divine will, for ultimately the nature of Torah is the wisdom of how to elicit the essence of the blessed infinite light, the encompassing light, which is the divine will, from a state of concealment to revelation in the creator worlds. So look at this. What is Torah? And really, what is a mitzvah? It is the process by which one elicits, one evokes, one brings forth the essence of the infinite light from a state of concealment to a state of revelation in our created world. That's what a mitzvah does. A mitzvah brings the infinite God into our world. But really, not not brings it because it's always here, but really um, reveals it in this world. And now he gets into specifics with regard to specific mitzvot. Here we go. Torah teaches in what manner the blessed infinite light can be elicited. I.e. the decrees of his wisdom are articulated in the teachings of Torah in the 248 positive commandments, which specifically can bring the revelation of the infinite light here below. So let me explain. I mentioned before the number 613. There are 613 total mitzvah, total commandments. Of the 613, 248 are what we call positive commandments. 365 of them are what we call negative commandments. What's positive? What does it mean when a mitzvah is positive? And what does it mean that a mitzvah is negative? Doesn't mean like optimistic or pessimistic, no. A positive mitzvah is a do mitzvah. It's a thou shalt do. Do this, do that, do the other. So light Shabbat candles or wrap tefillin or put up a mezuzah scroll on the doorpost of your home or eat kosher or um, listen to the shofar in Rosh Hashanah or eat matzah on Passover. All of those are do's, mitzvot that we're meant to do. Now, the 365 negative commandments are things that we're not supposed to do. For example, don't hurt someone else. Don't steal from someone else. Do not take God's name in vain. Those are all the things that we're not supposed to do. Now, those are, I would say, easier than the dues. It's not, it's not about easy or not easy, but if you're just sitting, right, minding your own business, you're probably, you're probably not violating a bunch of those 365, which means that's a good thing. But along with just not, transgressing the 365 don'ts, there are also 248 do's, things that we're supposed to be doing. And so what he says here, what's the role of the positive mitzvah? What's the role of doing a mitzvah, a positive mitzvah? It's bringing, it's eliciting the infinite light into our world, or more precisely, revealing the infinite author of our finite story. It's revealing the transcendent inside the box of our reality it's inviting the author into the story or again more precisely recognizing that this story has an author so that's what a mitzvah does so that's what a positive mitzvah does not the negative mitzvah we'll talk about the role of the 365 negative mitzvot in a moment as you see on the bottom of the page it talks about the 365 prohibitions we'll get there the 248 positive commandments, these are the actions by which we declare God is in this space. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to take a, a piece of leather of animal hide, fashion it into tefillin, and bind it to my arm and, and put it on my head and focus and concentrate on God, on divine spiritual awareness, divine awareness. I'm going to take a lump of, of, of wax and a piece of, uh, of, of, of a wick and I'm going to transform it into Shabbat, a Shabbat candle. I'm going to light it as a Shabbat candle. So the mitzvot are ways in which we reveal the infinite in this world. Let's take a look at how he continues. The 248 positive commandments are 248 different elicitations of the infinite light. Right? Generally, they all bring God into the world or reveal God in the world. Generally. But specifically, they do it in a different way. They're different elicitations of the the infinite light, of the supernal will. To shine lights into various sorts of vessels. So, generally speaking, every mitzvah brings light, revelation, awareness, higher consciousness into the world and, of course, into ourselves. But each mitzvah does it in a unique way. So the way that it's described in Kabbalah is shining lights into various sorts of vessels or different vessels. So the light is the same, but the vessels are different. A mitzvah can affect wax, leather, wool, um, wheat, food, right, matzah. A mitzvah can affect all sorts of various things, i.e. various Sorts of vessels, and here he gives several examples. We're gonna have. I'm just gonna going uh, uh, I'm going to outline it for a moment. We're gonna talk about tefillin. We'll talk about tzitzit. We'll talk about tzedakah. We'll talk about sukkah and etrog. So how many is that? One, two, three, four, five. Five mitzvot and their specific spiritual accomplishment. See, so here we go. For example. Example number one. The mitzvah of tefillin. And just to be clear, the mitzvah of tefillin is there are two black boxes. One for the arm and one for the head. Each one has straps. You strap it to your to, to the to the muscle. Right? On the upper part of your arm. And then you wrap it on your arm and on your hand. And then the head tefillin you put on top of your head. Okay? So this and this is a mitzvah for uh, for Jewish men 13 years and, and older from Bar Mitzvah on, Bar Mitzvah age So th- w- he's going to describe the, 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 the accomplishment of the Mitzvah Tefillin. For example, the Mitzvah Tefillin is the instrument for eliciting the supernal will into the four intellects, the four parts of the mind, namely Chachma and Bina, and then that which is divided into Chesed and Gevura. So we have four parts Chachma, Bina, and that, but that is really divided into two, Chesed and Gavura. So let me explain. In the tefillin, there are four, you know what? Let me do this. Um, Ellie, can you bring me my tefillin right there? Actually, Shai, can you bring me my tefillin back? Stop sharing for a second. You guys can jump in if you want to see this. When I say jump in, I mean like, you know, take a bit of a closer look. I'm about to show you a bit of a hands-on with tefillin. This is my tefillin bag. And this is the tefillin. So I'm pulling out now the head tefillin. This is the tefillin that goes on our heads. This is what it looks like. It's a box. You guys see that? Box with straps. Okay. And it goes basically on your head like this. Right, as David was wearing before at the top of the class. It has a knot in the back and these two straps that hang down, and you bring them forward to hang down over your chest. Now, on the side of the tefillin, it has a shin. That's the letter shin. You could see it, right? The The three lines of the shin, three heads of the shin. On the other side, you have another shin. This one has four heads. Now, if you know anything about a shin, a shin has three heads. So, but this one has four. Why four? There's, th- there's different ways that you can write letters. You can write it ink on parchment, or you can engrave it in stone. When you engrave it in stone, then actually your um, engraving, you have four columns somehow when you engrave it. So if you engrave the shin, you would have left four solid spaces around the engraved three holes. That makes sense in my head. I don't know if I'm articulating that correctly, but either way. Also, 3 plus 4 is 7, which is a very special number and uh, in Judaism and, of course, in, in nature itself. So that's also symbolized by the tefillin. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, but here's what, what we're talking about inside. If you take a look, it's a little bit hard to see. I'm going to try to get the, the reflection right. Can you see that there's four lines? Yeah? Okay, so... One, two, three, four. There are actually four chambers inside the tefillin. Ah, oh, now, if I don't know if you can notice this, can you see the side, it has a little bit of a crack in it? Yeah, and if you notice on the top, you see the threads? You see the threads? White, stitches, see that? All around, okay? These are very special threads. It's not, it's, it's, it's made of special um, materials, obviously, but, you can actually take out the threads and open up this box. You can actually, it opens, it, it, it opens up. And inside this part are scrolls. Are you with me on this? Yes, this is a hollow box inside with scrolls. That's what's inside the tefillin. To be a kosher pair of tefillin, I mean the box has to be a box, it has to be black, these are all, you know, the halakha, the, the, the laws of tefillin. But inside, the main thing is, it has to have the scrolls. Four scrolls in each of these four compartments. So if you open up the tefillin, if, if, I op- if we were to cut, this, cut the threads and swing it open, and I were to show you, kind of, again, from the, from the bottom looking inside, you would see four compartments, four chambers. In each chamber, there's a different... Uh, rolled up piece of parchment with a different um, chapter from, from the Torah, from the Bible. So one, of course, is Shema, and then there's three others that are contained in the, in the tefillin. Does this make sense? Yes? So far, so good? Okay. By the way, the other tefillin, the, he, the arm, this is the head tefillin, the one that goes in the arm does not have four chambers. It has one chamber. And in it also goes scroll, a scroll, but only one scroll. It's a long scroll, and it has the same four sections written on the same parchment, one after the other. Okay? So the armed tefillin has one chamber, one scroll, with four sections, with, with four excerpts from Torah. The head tefillin has them divided into four pieces of parchment, into four chambers, separate chambers, inside the tefillin. Parenthetically, I'm giving you now a little bit more information than you need for right now. Parenthetically, there is a classic dispute amongst the sages as to the order of the parshiot, the order of the sections in the tefillin. In other words, you have four sections. Sorry, four... I'm using the word sections for a few different things. You have four... um, pieces of Torah that are, that are included in the tefillin. But what's the precise order? There was a debate between Rashi, the classic biblical and Talmudic commentary Rashi, and one of his grandsons, who's known as Rabin Tam. So Chabad and others have the custom, not everybody, but Chabad has the custom of actually putting on two pairs of tefillin every single day. One that is, or, one, that, one arranged like Rashi and one arranged like Rabbeinu Tam just to be sure that we got it right, right? So there's one way in which the scrolls are written according to Rashi, one way like Rabbeinu Tam. And again, some have the custom, Chabad included, to, uh, to put on two pairs of tefillin for that reason. Okay, but the head tefillin, what's the message of tefillin? What's the spiritual meaning of tefillin? So we have that here in, in our discourse. He says the tefillin are all about bringing spiritual consciousness into our minds, into our brains, which are divided like the the sections of of the tefillin into four parts. Our own intellect is divided into four. Hold on, before I put the tefillin away, I just want to show you something, pursuant to what I mentioned. For those of you that are good with the Hebrew, you'll see this is the Rashi bag. It says Rashi, Rashi on it. And this is the other bag. Well, yeah. Rash tough, which is Rabbeinu Tam. Anyway, okay. It um it does a few things. It makes the chabad the chabad young man's tefillin bag twice as long, and for the dad, it doubles the price on the tefillin when you buy the tefillin. Is there an order to which you put them on? Yeah, Rashi is always the primary one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rashi is always the primary. Everyone does Rashi. So even Chabad, you, you do Rashi, you do the whole davening with Rashi. And when you finish the service, you just quick, you put on Rabbeinu Utam, the other one, you say the Shema, and you take it off. So you just, you just it's a very quick, it's a quick hit and run for Rabbeinu Utam. Anyway, but Chabad didn't always put it on, by the way. It was always certain people, they asked, you know, they asked, at, at some point the Rebbe, the Rebbes would tell, Certain people, you know, you should start putting on Rabbeinu Tam. It was always like a, you know, more of a mystical thing or whatever it is. But, but our Rabbi at some point, I don't remember, yeah, rapping is different than Chabad, Ashkenaz, and Sephard. yeah. But at some point, the Rebbe said, you know what, everybody, all the, all the Chabadniks from Bar Mitzvah should all, should all put on Rabbeinu Tam. So, by my Bar Mitzvah, I put it on. It used to be, like, even within Chabad, again, the older Chassidim, they would have to, you know, put in a lot of years of study and, and all that stuff to, to get To merit putting on Rabbina Tam. And then at some point even the kids started putting on Rabbina Tams. I guess the Rebbe saw that we need we need whatever light we can get. Yeah. I have a question. Yes. So is that why in the morning prayers that you see the rabbi Tom's to fill in? And so is that when you rap Rabbi Tom's to fill in versus the rabbi um The Rashi, Rashi yeah, yeah. So, so tefillin, yeah. Typically, tefillin is only done in the for the morning prayers. So, there's three prayers, right? The at the morning, the mincha, and the maariv. So, the only one, typically, there's one exception, but typically, tefillin is only put on for the morning service, um, and you would put it on before you start the prayers, and then you do the whole prayer while wearing the tefillin. I should mention this is important, actually. Back in the day, I mean, like. You know, times of the temple, like a few thousand years ago, people would would wear tefillin all day. They would put on tefillin in the morning and wear it the whole day and take it off, you know, in the evening. But they were holier. They were more, I don't know, they they had their own challenges that I'm sure, but on some level they were able to to pull that off. Um, One of the things when you wear tefillin is you're not supposed to be distracted with any distracting thoughts. So, you know... Nowadays, the custom, and, and it's been like this for a, for a while now, for hundreds of years, the custom is that we put it on before the morning prayers, we do the morning prayers, and then we take it off. Um, again, if, you, if, if someone who puts on Rebbeinah Tams would, after the prayers are done, put on a second pair of tefillin, say the Shema prayer, and then take that one off, um, you know, just to get that one in as well. But yeah, the tefillin is definitely centered around the morning service, um, with the thought that, look, it's a little bit of a longer service, but we can we can focus on, you know, hopefully we can not be distracted for those, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes of, of the morning prayers. Um, okay, so but, but what I showed you with the Het is that there are four chambers for the four paragraphs, for the four different chapters that are inside the box. So, um, and by the way, I should mention also, I had the merit of looking into many of these scrolls because, uh, as as you know, my grandfather of uh, of blessed memory, he was a sofer, he was a scribe, and one of the main things he did was check people's tefillin and mezuzot, but he was constantly opening them up. And sometimes, by the way, because they're painted, when when they're sewed up, they're also painted, um, so sometimes it was hard to get in there. He would take various clamps, you don't want to damage the tefillin, he would take out the stitches, then he would take um, like a flat, I don't know what it is, like a flat, um, you know, picture like a Phillips um, head screwdriver, but a little bit wider and a little bit thinner, right? So wider, but flat, but thin. He used to take like a little bit of a, of a hammer sometimes to kind of chisel it open, you know, so that you can open it up. But once you get it open, you can look at the, at the, at the sections, at the, at the pieces of parchment and make sure that everything is written correctly, nothing got damaged somehow or whatever it is. And it's kosher. In What we're learning today in Kabbalah, it says that what is the significance of putting the tefillin on the head, above the brain? The message is that we're trying to connect human intellect with divine consciousness, with divine awareness. And thus, there are four sections corresponding to the four sections, if you will, of the brain. There is the chachma part of the brain, which is the creative part of the brain. There's the bina part of the brain, which is the more analytical part of the mind. And then there's the dat, which is the focus of the brain, or the connection part of the brain, which could either go toward chesed or gvura, which are the first two emotions, but it says that dat is connected with the emotions, the primary ones being um, uh, um, chesed or gvura, kind of attraction or rejection. So when I connect with an idea, either I'm drawn toward it, or um, or I withdraw from it. So either there's a pull or a push. So those are the four dimensions of the mind: creative, analytical, and then a connection of pull or push to the idea. Hence the four compartments of the tefillin. So let me show this to you inside, right? In the language of yes. Okay, in the language of of our text, take a look. We're going to start again from here. For example, the mitzvah tefillin is the instrument for eliciting the supernal will into the four intellects, the four parts of the mind, namely, chachma, which is creative intelligence, bina, which is more analytical intelligence, and then dat, which is a connection and a practical way forward, which is divided into chesed, attraction, and gevura, rejection, or pull and push. This is affected through as I mentioned a moment ago, the four biblical sections, the four chapters that are found inside the tefillin, and I showed you how those four sections inside the Hetfilin are divided into four chambers in the tefillin. The elicitation of the divine light is manifest in the highest spiritual world known as Atzilut, and then in the world, in the in the worlds. Of Biyabriya, Yitzir Nasiya, until it reaches and illuminates the mortal, the person performing the mitzvah and donning the tefillin. So look at this. What, that, what happens when a person puts on tefillin is that they are eliciting, right? They're drawing forth, they're summoning, if you will, the infinite divine will, the infinite divine intellect from above into the world of emanation and then into the world of creation, and then into the world of formation, and then into the world of action, and then into the person's own physical body by putting on tefillin. And specifically what happens, it centers the mind and connects the mind with something higher. To speak in less mystical terms, what that means is that Judaism, for the last 3,300 years, has been super new agey. You know, people start their day today with mindfulness and meditation and yoga, and you know what? We've had tefillin. And that's what it is. What is tefillin? You want to speak New Agey? Bring it on. What is tefillin? Tefillin is mindfulness and meditation, right? And connecting the mind with something higher and clearing it from distractions. Yeah, it's all that stuff. That's what tefillin is. It's, it's connecting the mind with the divine, with something greater. And so it's, it's connecting the transcendent. With, with the mind. It's getting our mind focused before we started. And that's why, although you could do tefillin really anytime during the day. And as I mentioned, in ancient times, they would, wear, they would wear tefillin the whole day. So theoretically, yeah, you could put on tefillin for the afternoon service, but there's power in doing it in the morning because since it is about connecting the mind and focusing the mind, well, when do we want our minds connected and focused? <laughs> Once we're halfway through the day? Or when, we, when we're starting the day, it's certainly more powerful to get our day started on the right foot with the right, with the right awareness. Okay, so that's what tefillin does. So again, every mitzvah connects God with the world, but tefillin specifically utilizes and uplifts and connects the brain, the intelligence, the mind, as we've been discussing the consciousness. Okay, next, the mitzvah of tzitzit. Tzitzit, of course, are the strings that we wear on a four-cornered garment. So, just to explain, when wearing a four- and again, this is typically done by men over a bar mitzvah, although younger bar mitzvah also could do it as as an act of training. But when when you're wearing a four-cornered garment, you wear strings, tassels attached to the corners. Each of the corners has eight strings. So eight times four is 32. Thirty-two strings in total, right? So I'm gonna show you. Oh, you know what? I have I deconstructed my tefillin bag, my talit and talit bag. Anyway, so here's my talit, my prayer shawl. Okay, so you can see here. Let me. Yeah, they're all gathered in one place. There we go. So here we have. This is just folded, right? So corner number one with one. Let's do it easier. One, two. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I don't know if I got on camera because I was looking at the at the strands, but eight, eight strings. Okay, eight strings, there are five knots, it goes around a few times. There's mystical secrets in all of this, but there are eight strings per corner. So we have corner number one, corner number two, corner number three, and corner number four. Okay, one, two, three, four. Four times eight is, of course, 32. So in this, in this collection, there are 32 strands total. So as Kabbalah tells us, there is mystical meaning behind this, as we're gonna say inside right now. Oh, I just realized, I'm sorry. You guys were looking at a super tiny box because I was sharing my screen. and You can only see me as a little, little snapshot. This is much bigger. Anyway, hopefully you can see this a little bit better, right? Four corners, four tassels, Eight strings in each. So that is 32. Okay, so let's get back inside and we'll look at the mystical significance of 32. Um, so the mitzvah, the mitzvah of tzitzit elicits the infinite light, again, because every mitzvah draws on the author, the, right, the source. Every mitzvah plugs us into the source and brings that into our reality, but in a different <laughs> vessel. So, the mitzvah of Tzitzit elicits the infinite light into where? The 32 paths of Chachma. It says there are 32 paths of Chachma. You can look at footnote 166. It's in different sources over here. There are all together 32 strands of the corners of the Talit. Okay, basically, there are 32 channels of Chachma, of creative wisdom. We spoke before about Chachma in regards to the tefillin, right? How the Chachma, Bina, and Dat, which has two parts. but Within Chachma itself, there are 32 speci- there are 32 specific paths. And what that means, what that means is give me a second, what that means is is that Tzitzit connects our creative juices with the divine. So that our creativity is a little bit holier so that our creativity is a little bit more sublime. Right? 32 paths of chakma are all channels of creative intelligence, and what we're doing when putting on the Talit is, is connecting our creative mind in all of its various forms, in all 32 of its specific forms, with the supernal, with the infinite light. So it's bringing the infinite light into creativity. So tfilin creates a connection between the infinite light and our minds, our intelligence in general. Tzitzit specifically connects the infinite with the 32 paths of Chachma. Let's continue. Let's talk about tzedakah. Through the mitzvah of tzedakah, tzedakah of course is giving, in English we call it charity, but... As I've discussed many times, it's it's not a great translation. Tzedakah is much more than charity. It's much deeper than charity. But through the mitzvah of tzedakah of giving, the blessed infinite light illuminates the attribute of chesed. Right? Chesed is the emotional, the deep soul trait of giving that a person possesses. But a person can give all sorts of different ways. And there could also be unhealthy giving. Giving that is unholy and unhealthy. There are many different forms of chesed. Some that are holy, some that are not. When we give tzedakah, what we're doing is drawing the infinite, the blessed infinite light, the infinite light of God, of the source. We're drawing source code into our chesed, within our soul. Likewise with other mitzvot, through sukkah the light shines into makifim de'ema. This is powerful. When we build the sukkah, and we're in the sukkah, we're, we're eating or, you know, quote unquote living in the sukkah for seven days. So in a sukkah we bring the infinite light into the element called Makifim de Aima. Makifim is the transcendent, the transcendent dimension of aima. Ema means ma mother, um, which is a euphemism for bina. Chachma is called father, Bina is called mother. Right? Chachma is father, Bina is mother, so makifim de aimait it's a feminine energy. Ma'kivim de'ema is the transcendent light of, of bina. That's what happens when we go into a sukkah, which is, by, which is why I should mention parenthetically, although halacha talks about... Um, halacha ta- oh, I see some questions in the chat, which I'll get to in a second. Although halacha talks about sleeping in a sukkah, because you're supposed to live in the sukkah for a week, and that includes everything, including sleeping, Chabad custom is not to sleep in the sukkah. Not because it's going against law, the law, but because, you know, the law is that if you're uncomfortable, you're not supposed to be in the sukkah. And as the rabbis would say, makifim how can you sleep in this transcendent light of makifim de'bina of the makif of bina? How can you sleep in God? Like, would you be able to sleep if the king was standing right next to you? Would you be able to sleep? No. How could you sleep? Could you, I mean, lahavdil. Lahavdil, it means like to draw a huge separation. Imagine if your favorite celebrity was hanging out in your house and schmoozing with you in your room. Would you just fall asleep? No, you wouldn't be able to fall asleep because it's like, oh my gosh, it's your hero, whatever it is. And so if you felt the presence of God right next to you, could you fall asleep? No. So that's why since the sukkah is, is where God's, God's manifestation is so real, especially for a tzaddik, for a rebbe, for a spiritual master, so they couldn't sleep in a sukkah. And since, you know, a chassid tries to emulate a rebbe, so how could we sleep if we know what it is? Even if we don't feel it, but we know what it is, we can't. So that's why Chabad specifically doesn't sleep in a sukkah, although others do, and I'm not saying yes or no, but the point is that a sukkah, draws forth this incredible light of ma'kifim, the bina, of the transcendent light of bina, into, into the sukkah and then into the person who's in the sukkah. Ma'kifim, the transcendent light, is symbolized by the sukkah, which also surrounds us. It's an encompassing light or a surrounding light, like the sukkah physically, which surrounds a person. Some mitzvah we eat, like matzah. Some we wear, like tefillin, formed to our body. And some go around us like the sukkah, not tailored to our bodies. It surrounds us. So that's symbolic of makifim dibina, this higher, this higher transcendent energy that is not tailored to a person, but is rather beyond us. But still, we get that flavor, that energy, on sukkot. Okay, let me share with you once again. We're back inside. So that's what happens when we, we enjoy the mitzvah of sukkah. Finally, and through etrog which is, of course, the etrog is the citron that's used on Sukkot as one of the four types of plants. Through the etrog, we draw the infinite light into malchut, and so on. Etrog is, has a connection with malchut, which we've been talking about as the, as the, uh, the lowest of the divine sefirot. Okay, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that every mitzvah, every mitzvah, fuses the infinite with the finite. Every mitzvah brings the blessed infinite light into our world and into the item that you're doing the mitzvah and into the person, namely you and I who are doing said mitzvah. Mm -hmm. That's what every mitzvah does. 248 mitzvot are points of light, are points of connection to bring God's light into the world. I'm going to give you an example. Not a good analogy, but an analogy nonetheless. It's imperfect, but it might be effective. Imagine a, an internet connection, right? Forget Wi-Fi for a second. You have a computer, and you need to get online. So what do you do? Again, forget Wi-Fi for a second. You take the, the ethernet the, the, the cable, you take the, the internet cable, you plug it, you plug it into uh, into your computer and then you draw forth from the internet or from, right, the connection into your device. Every mitzvah is a connection. Every mitzvah is that cable of connection that plugs us into something beyond ourselves. So whether it's tefillin or tzitzit or tzedakah or sukkah or etrog or any other mitzvah, whatever mitzvah it is, every mitzvah does the same thing. It draws from the infinite light into our finite reality. And all of this, he says, let's continue, all this can be accomplished only through the wisdom of the Torah, decreeing that we perform the rites of Sukkah, tefillin, and etrog, etc., in only such a manner as can bring about the revelation of the infinite light, while any other manner is ineffectual. So what is the Torah The Torah and mitzvot? The Torah and mitzvot tell us exactly how to make that connection. A person says, well, I don't want that connection. I want to create my own connection. Well, how do you know then you're really connected? Right? If you create your own connection, what are you connecting with? You might just be connecting with yourself, and that would be just uh, 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 your your own loop, but really not connecting with, with that which is transcendent. In other words, the power of a mitzvah is precisely because it emanates not from self, but from source. That's why a mitzvah is so powerful. A mitzvah is so powerful precisely because it's coming from the beyond. It's God saying, Do this, and we're fused. Do this, and my presence is now fused in your reality. If we just come up with our own mitzvah, like I feel like I should be doing X, Y, and Z on our own, well, what are we connecting with, really? We're connecting with our own brains, we're connecting with our own intuitions, we're connecting with our own feelings but we're not connecting with something that transcends self. The power of a mitzvah lies precisely in the fact that we didn't come up with it. The power of a mitzvah lies precisely in the fact that the author, the creator, the designer, the composer, is the one who's giving us the tool to connect with him. That's why it's... and him, of course, not gender specific. It's just what's commonly used for whatever reason but connecting with God. That's how we connect. We connect with God on God's terms, not on our own. Because again, just I hope this, this example is coming across clearly. If I, it, you know, when, when we connect out of our own minds, then we're just connecting with our own minds. When we're connecting through the, 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 the channels that God gave us, then we're connecting in a pure way. Okay, let's continue. Questions or comments thus far? Oh, let me, and let me look at the chat as well because I saw an interesting question. So Fran asked, do you say a bracha on the second pair? So I think the question was, well, there's two ways to understand the question. Whether it's, you understand, do you say a separate blessing on the, on the arm and the head tefillin or on the second pair of rashi and of Tam? So like this, with regard to the two boxes of tefillin, the arm and the head, there are different customs, as David writes. So some say one blessing, one bracha, to cover both boxes, some do a separate blessing on the arm and on the head. Certainly, if one interrupts between the arm and the head, you always do two blessings. But what about the Rabbeinu time? What about you did you did your Rashi Tefillin, you did the first pair of Tefillin, you did the whole davening, all the prayers, and now you come up to the, with the second part, with the second pair of Tefillin? The answer is you do not. The typical, typically, you do not say a blessing on the second pair of Tefillin. It's included in the first. You have in mind. When you put on the first pair of tefillin, then it's also going to cover the Rabbeinu Tam, the, the, the second set that you put on. So it's, all, it's an all-inclusive tefillin, um, tefillin uh, mitzvah performance thing. So that's the short answer to that question. Yes, Donna. So we're always connected with God, but at the time of a mitzvah, then there's an extra burst of connection? Or? Yeah, yes, exactly. And an extra burst of consciousness where we're thinking about God and we're doing something to act on that thought. So it's meditative and it's action-oriented and it's all, yes. So we're always connected with God and we're always connected with the essence of God 100%. But it's not revealed. It's not in our consciousness. It's not something that we're acting on. But when we do a mitzvah, we're doing all of the above. But still what I said before is, 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 is important, which is, that the power of the mitzvah is is that it's not something that we came up with, because if it's something we came up with, then who says we're really connecting with with source? Consciously, we're connecting with self. Right? We're connecting with what makes us feel good about ourselves, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't it doesn't take us, it doesn't move us outside of ourselves, and ultimately, it doesn't. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't hit the same doesn't press the same buttons as doing a mitzvah does, a mitzvah that comes from outside. Which is why sometimes we feel the most transported and uplifted um, when we do the mitzvahs that are the most challenging to our sensibilities. The ones that we really would not have thought of on our own at all. The ones that even maybe when we're doing it don't make that much sense to us. It's those mitzvot that really stretch us beyond our comfort zones and beyond our, our rationale to, to really connect with something higher only for the sake of connecting with something higher. Um, that's not to say that there, that there isn't power in a mitzvot that we get and understand and that resonates with us and, you know, makes sense. There is power in that also. But there's, from the perspective of stretching beyond self and connecting with something transcendent, there is unique power in the chukim and the mitzvot that don't make much rational, logical sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So God's question was pretty much mine um, with just a little more. Um, so can we achieve our purpose without doing mitzvot as humans or as, as Jews? And then, you know, what is the status of the of our soul uh, with and without mitzvot? Are we is it atrophying? Is it just harder to to, to get the creativity, the haf, the chachma, et etc., without it? Two excellent questions. Good, good. So question number one, I don't know if I, if I heard the whole question, but I think you're asking, could you achieve the res- I think you asked, Could you, essentially, could you achieve the result of the mitzvah without doing the mitzvah action? I think that was your question. Um, and to that, the answer is sort of, but not 100%. So, you know, we can align our minds with God and our creativity with God and, and kind of do a lot of those things on our own, without doing the mitzvah, but it's still not really going to transcend self as much as when we do something in the tangible. Plus, when we do something with the tangible, we're not only stretching our own consciousness, we're infusing that infinite light into a piece of the universe, which you can't do without the piece of the universe. So when we put on tefillin, we're taking a piece of of leather that came from an animal and we're elevating it into a part of a spiritual consciousness and, bo- and, and bound with this transcendent experience in a way that would not transform the natural universe otherwise. So the leather, the wool, the wax, the food, the citron, the wood for the sukkah, none of it would be transformed, of the world, none of those elements of the world would be transformed if we just did the meditative element ourselves Divorce from the physical physical, tangible experience, number one. Number two, it's not exactly what God wants, so it's not going to perfectly channel the the infinite light as when we do it correctly. That's why, by the way, I want to go back to to just showing you one line over here that I think addresses your question. He says... um, all this can be accomplished only through the wisdom of the Torah, decreeing that we perform the rites of sukkah, etrog, and filling, in only such a manner as can bring about the revelation of the infinite light. That means that even when you do a mitzvah, it has to be done right. Right? I know that right is different here. Right, I don't, but, but the Torah tells us how to do a mitzvah in such a way that can bring about the revelation of the infinite light. So you, 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 if, if we do something else, It might be uplifting. It might be beneficial in other ways. But to this extent of drawing forth the infinite light, it's not going to hit in the same way. So today we spoke about the power of a mitzvah. And we spoke about the power of a mitzvah on multiple levels. A mitzvah is a good deed. A mitzvah is a divine commandment. A mitzvah is um, uh, a nostalgic uh, experience. But a mitzvah at the core is about connection. Mitzvah Tzavta, it's about a connection. It's about a plugging into the infinite. It's about characters in a story authored by God waking up and realizing that their story has been written by God and how can they connect with the author if they're stuck inside the story? The author has given tools, pathways of connection, and those pathways are the mitzvah. So are we connected by default because we've been authored by God? yes. But is there a way to be consciously aware of that connection and evoke that connection and and, and realize that connection in our lives? Yes, as well. And that is by doing a mitzvah. So in short, the 248 positive commandments are beautiful ways to connect finite creature, a finite creature creation with an infinite creator to connect the characters of the story with the author. It's a beautiful thing. It lifts us out of the mundane, out of the ordinary, into the extraordinary, into the spiritual. And in doing so, we make a home for God on earth. And in doing so, we live our most authentic life. A life that is authentic because it reveals the source. As opposed to a life lived on the ground, just getting by day to day. So, in contrast with the day-to-day drudgery of existence. When we do a mitzvah, it lifts us up. It lifts us into a higher space by, by introducing the higher space into our space. And every mitzvah does that equally. Every mitzvah on its own has its own specific way of doing that. We spoke about tefillin, and we spoke about tzitzit, and we spoke about sukkah, tzedakah, and sukkah, and etrog, and every mitzvah in its own way is a transformative experience, transformational experience. So that's the power of a mitzvah. And this speaks to, I think, today's, today's day, which is Gimel Tamoz, the yard site, 27th yard site of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And on this day, we know that on the day of a yard site, a person's life, the light of their life, comes in full, in full focus. Right, because the, the day of a person's passing uh, represents the culmination of their work on this earth, so the rebbe's work, if you will, on this earth culminates every year on this day on, this, on the Yahrzeit. If there's one thing the rebbe the rebbe um, uh, focused on and, and encouraged, was doing a mitzvah. I, I know God also encourages it in Torah and Moses, and it's not new. I don't mean I don't mean to imply that the rebbe is the first one that spoke about doing a mitzvah. But the Rebbe really spoke about the power of even one mitzvah, one time, right? Without needing to feel like I need to, you know, become, you know, all mitzvot all the time. Just one mitzvah. So here is my uh, my practical call to action on this day. Sunday, June 13th, 2021, the third day of Tammuz, 5781. And that is to do a mitzvah. One mitzvah that you might not otherwise do today. Whether it's tefillin, sitzit, whether it's tzedakah, building a sukkah and shaking the etrog, uh, not, not for today. But there are many mitzvahs that we can do today. We could study Torah. T- Torah studies also mitzvah, which we just did. Um, but find a mitzvah. Make sure to eat something kosher today and say a blessing before and after you eat. Um, and you can Google and find all the blessings online, Chabad.org and other, other Jewish websites. But find a mitzvah to do today. And do it just because. Do it because your soul wants, because God wants, because you want. Do it in honor of the Rebbe. Do it in honor of yourself. Do it in honor of the world. But do one more mitzvah today than perhaps you would have done. So if you're planning on doing a lot of mitzvahs today, so then you have to work harder to find one that you might not have done ordinarily and do one, do do an extra mitzvah. And as I I mentioned in in our JLI course that we just concluded last week, quoting from Rambam, from Maimonides, every mitzvah can change the world. Every mitzvah does change the world and changes ourselves. But any mitzvah, any one mitzvah could bring Mashiach, could bring a global transformation. And so may indeed the next mitzvah that we do, very, very soon, right after we finish, may the next mitzvah indeed bring us not only personal salvation, personal transformation, but global transformation And bring Mashiach and bring heaven down to earth in a full way, in a settled way. And may this world be indeed the beautiful garden that God intended it to be. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me this morning for Kabbalah and Coffee. I will mention (coughs) very significantly that we have an event tonight um, in honor of the 3rd of Tammuz at Chabad in town and in-town Jewish Academy starting at 6.30 p.m., an evening of inspiration honoring the Rebbe's life and legacy. 6.30 p.m., we have a wine and dessert reception. 7 p.m., program, and the program features my dear brother-in-law from Los Angeles, originally from South Africa, (coughs) Leah's brother, Rabbi Moshe Kesselman, who's going to be speaking about stories to stir the soul. We're also going to have a short film about the Rebbe, featuring different people that were inspired by the Rebbe's call to action and call to love, um, to love our fellow Jew and our fellow human being. So join us tonight for an evening of food and inspiration and song and storytelling and film as we celebrate this very, very special day. All right, I look forward to seeing you tonight, and I should mention also that tonight's Event has been graciously dedicated by Dr. Joy Maxi. Thank you, Doctor, for the uh, for the dedication in honor of the Rebbe to uh, to help uplift our community and uh, may indeed it be a beautiful uplifting piece of uh, of today's very special energy. All right, I look forward to seeing you a little bit later. I want to wish you all a, a good day and don't forget, do a mitzvah, change the world. Bring heaven down to earth. Uh, Rabbi, uh, yes. is tonight, is tonight uh, virtual and in-person? Tonight is in-person. Not sure yet about the virtual. It depends on getting the, um, getting the equipment set up, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely in-person. All right. Good. Good, good, good. But I'll be in touch if we can get, if we can get the, uh, the technology set up. Okay. All right. We'll see you all. Take care, everybody. Have a good day. Shavuot Tov.